0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. I'm not going to discover you that this could represent a landmark year for women's football. After a remarkable 2022, in which record-breaking figures were seen across all fronts, including fan attendance, investments, broadcasting deals, partnerships, the truth is 2023 needs to be the year in which the next level of growth is unlocked. And one of the elements needs to be profitability. But what does it take to make the women's game more profitable? The thing is, we went back into the vault of WFS Europe to recuperate a brilliant panel in which Ebru Coxal from Women in Football and Maggie Murphy from Lewis FC shared their thoughts and expertise in a panel led by Elise Kosaifi from Portes Consulting. You will see them talk about the pillars that drive profitability for Lewis FC, the importance of distributing resources fairly and getting women into leadership positions, how to drive new segments of fans into the game outside of those that are loyalists or fanatics, the key role of content in helping achieving precisely that, and of course, the potential for the future. Honestly, this panel has amazing insights from the two leaders that are actually making change happen. Before going into the episode, though, and speaking of WFS Europe, tickets are now available. Enjoy our super early bird offer for WFS Europe in Sevilla on September 20th and 21st. Purchase your ticket today and benefit from a two for the price of one offer. But hurry up. We have limited number of passes available the biggest football industry event is already on the horizon. So, if you want to join the leaders that will shape the future of football, this is your opportunity. Head over to www.worldfootballsummit.com. Again, that's www.worldfootballsummit.com and buy your ticket right now. And with that, onto the panel with Ebru, Maggie and Elise.
1: Good morning. Uh, Welcome everyone to our panel this uh, morning. We're gonna be discussing, as you see, building a sustainable business case for women's football. Um, So what does that mean? That means actually how can we um, create a self-sustaining ecosystem over time, and what are the ways of actually how to create that? Maybe as a starting point, uh, I want to reflect a bit on the successes we've had so far. So starting this year has been quite incredible as a starting point, uh, the season with the classico breaking records. And then we had the Euros in the summer with a lot of um, also records being broken, highest viewerships. I think it was double the last edition of the Euros, 365 million cumulative viewers. And then the final, obviously, where we were all there and it was incredible with 87,000 attendees. So just reflecting on all of that. Maggie, maybe starting with you uh, what does the what is the impact of the euros um, what was the impact that the euros had, and how did you see that reflect as well on your club
2: sure so for those of you who might have been there, I don't know whether your goosebumps have gone down yet, but when you were in that stadium, when those goals were being scored when the final whistle went, there was something in that you cannot calculate some kind of power energy passion. Um, and in a really challenging way, some of that legacy is gonna be really difficult to actually calculate, because we don't know the impact on society and culture yet, other than the individual stories that, that we're hearing. For us at Lewis, we did see an increase in our first match in the in the attendance. We did have a number of sponsors that have reached out to start talking to us about potential partnerships, but there's still a but. And I think the, the but is that Uh, after a couple of those games, our attendances have slipped, and the sponsorships haven't quite come through yet. So while there's this huge potential and energy and passion, and obviously we're working really hard to capitalise on it, I'm still a little bit nervous that we still treat women's football as an event, something like the theatre that you go to every few months, and not necessarily something you go to week on week. But the one powerful thing that I really took away in that stadium, looking around, was just how representative of the nation that population was. There was men, women, older people, children. There were uh, guys in their 20s wearing baseball caps. There were women wearing hijab. There was black people, white people, brown people. It was like a, a, so representative and it made me think, wow, when the sponsors come on board, you can tap into a huge new population because there's so many more avenues, I think, for people to to get involved because of that
1: representation. Brilliant. Uh, Everett, do you echo that? Like, does that resonate with you? What were your feelings or the impact you saw from the Euros as well?
3: I think I agree with Maggie, but it wasn't just the final. It was really even starting with the opening game and leading up to the final, of course, it helped a lot that the host nation was in the final. But even the matches where the lionesses were not playing really filled up, sold out. And for me, um, the interesting thing was: you get in a cab, the cab driver is talking about the Euros and the lionesses. You're lining up in your in your favorite coffee shop, the barista is talking to you about you know women's football. And I think that's when you see the dial really shifting. And for me, two quick figures I thought were quite impressive. Um, One is Nielsen uh, did a research just before the Euros in January 2022 in the UK. The interest in women's football was 22%. End of July, it was 38%. But as Maggie says, whether it stays at that level, of course, is another question. And another one, again, very important for me, um, the kids 12 to um, 16 year old uh, are surveyed, I guess, regularly, especially by women in sport. And 75% of the sporty boys say that one day they dream to be an elite player. And for girls, two years ago, it was only 50%. So when they repeated the survey this summer, it was 75% for the girls as well. So the importance of see it, believe it, you know, if you have the role models, if you have you know, the the real success stories in front of you, then you can also aspire to be in that place. So those two measures for me were extremely important. And um, maybe one, you know, small good thing about the pandemic and the fact that the Euros were delayed by one year, before this buzz comes down, we're off to Australia and New Zealand for the World Cup. So I think the interest is, is going to continue throughout the year.
1: I certainly hope so. Uh, I was actually speaking to Andrea yesterday, who was telling me from the zone that uh, this, her uh, daughter's school actually sent an email saying, following the lioness's success, we're introducing an after-school program for girls uh, in football, which is really uh, exactly what you're saying there. The impact it has had so far has been incredible, and hopefully we can try to sustain that. Um, so just reflect, I mean, this is all great and good and we all know the success and the growth and we're happy about it and we want it to grow even further. So now it's about like, how do we sustain this? How do we keep this going? And how do we make sure that we're creating a self-sustaining ecosystem, uh, in women's football, Maggie, maybe you could tell me a bit, what does building a sustainable ecosystem mean for you and what do you think? What does that look like actually in the women's game? So for Lewis FC, we're in a completely
2: different environment from uh, some of the big clubs. Um, You know, you see the financials, I think Arsenal, 90% of the funding comes from the men's side of the club. We can't do that. I don't have a big club to lean on. And there's pros and cons for that. Obviously, sometimes I really wish I could just ask someone for an extra half a million pounds. If anyone's got half a million pounds, (laughs) let me know.
1: Um,
2: But I can't do that. But that means we have to be innovative and creative. Um, it also means that we have to charge appropriately for our product. So for us to make things sustainable, um, we we charge a proper price. I think we're actually the most expensive women's football team in the country. Um, and we're kind of proud of it. I was a little bit at the beginning I was thinking, it's a bit strange that we're more expensive than Manchester City or Chelsea or Arsenal. But that shows the the financial dynamics. We're not leaning on something. We have to make the money. And every time we've raised the price, more people have come. And I think it's partly to do with the fact that we value the product and other people will value it as well. So for us, actually uh, monetizing it appropriately is important for us. We also have a very different model. We have an ownership structure. So we are fan owned. We have 2,300 owners in 37, 38 countries around the world. And we're trying to prove that there can be a different type of football club um, that people want to buy into because they want to see it succeed. That, for us, is a strand of revenue which other clubs don't have because of the different types of structures they have. And the final thing for us is we're a kind of a club with a personality. I think people gen- generally know what we stand for. Five years ago, we became the first club in the world to split revenue equally between the men's side and the women's side. But because we don't have the... Uh, we don't have this heavy brand you know you must do this these are your kpis this is how you must look we can test and pilot and be creative in our match day experience we can test and pilot and be creative in in other forms of of revenue and income generation so even just in the last year we've started monetizing our leadership a leadership program because so many people were coming to ask us for help in how to change their businesses that we just thought, hang on a sec, this is a new revenue income stream for us, which maybe other clubs can't do. So I guess for us, it's constantly thinking about uh, being innovative, different, having a personality and marking ourselves out. And that's the way that we are going to try and survive as well as thrive. (laughs)
1: Um, So, I mean, Ebru, reflecting on that, I think this is such an important point that Maggie raises because... We are seeing today different types of clubs, right? There are clubs that are female-owned, there are clubs that are relying on the bigger clubs to thrive and survive and actually grow and they have money just ready that they can tap into. Um, I mean, if we think about sustainability in the future, how do you foresee that looking... So how do you think this will look like and what would be like the composition of those clubs? Like, are we seeing that some of those bigger clubs are going to be growing further or are we going to see a different dynamic in the future as part of a sustainable ecosystem?
3: Um, For me, sustainability, uh, of course, for everybody, the definition is different. There's a lot of components to it, but I have always the financial perspective. And for me, uh, I think what will make the system grow in a healthy way is a fair distribution of resources and what I mean by that is um, I think still globally only two percent of the value and money that football generates is going into women's football and that two percent obviously is not enough to achieve that sustainability status or financial health status. So the the part that would break that vicious cycle is, is the investment part first. So Um, Either by commercial partners, which we've seen significantly happening um, during the Euros, for uh, Champions League, for some of the top leagues, and um, that is allowing for more visibility for the game, more than anything. And once the game is more visible, women's game, then more people realize that it's actually a quite attractive product and they start following it. So you start building the audiences, whether they are on TV, online or coming to your stadium. Um, So seeing more people on the stands will bring in more sponsors, more broadcasters, because they don't want to see an empty stadium, right? Um, So that then brings obviously more investment into the game, whether it's by owners or private equity investors or once again, commercial investors. And that spirals you up to better professionalism, you know, better infrastructure and uh, also increases participation in the game because there are um, still so many people who want to play, but they don't have access. So. Uh, In that, uh, making sure that, first of all, when a girl is interested, she's able to go and get a first taste, start continuing to play, and then find the right pathways within her country to be able to make her way up to the elite game. But it starts with, again, the decision makers. We talked about it a little bit this morning before coming in. Um, Who is making that decision at your league, at your club, at your federation, at your confederation on how to use those resources? Ebru, I know you're doing
1: excellent work at women in football on that front, especially to actually develop leaders and develop women in football. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how are you kind of trying to get those women into
3: the decision making positions to actually influence those decisions today? Thank you. Um, Most of you probably know we are a network of about 7,000 women and men and non-binary people as well. So it's not just women trying to advance women. And uh, what we're trying to do is, first of all, uh, encourage more women to step up to leadership positions, equip them with the right skills and the knowledge, but most importantly, the self-confidence to try for those positions. We're also working with the decision makers, which is extremely important because they're the ones that set the tone in their organization. um, And and they make the decision whether they really want their equality and diversity strategies to turn into an inclusive culture in their organizations. And recently, The Athletic actually published an article um, saying, you know, who owns your Premier League club and who makes decisions on your Premier League <laughs> club board. Um, 122 board members, only 12 are women, three clubs have two women on their boards, six clubs only one woman, and 11 clubs without any women on their board. And as a woman who's been sitting on all-male boards since 2010, I know that I was always the one that was asking the difficult and challenging questions, but also you know, uh, in a constructive way, asking people, what if, you know, what if 100 percent of the budget didn't go to men's football and even a mere one more percent, you know, went to women's football. So it's really having that voice at the decision making table who can think um, outside the box and who can break the group think, who is Always focusing on that top one percent elite part of football, but there is the other 99 percent globally, from grassroots to refereeing to coaching to, you know, uh, anyone that is working around in and around the industry. Uh, there is a lot there that can be brought in and uh, contributing, you know, much better to the whole industry. Maggie,
1: what are your thoughts on this? I know your club is quite different in your approach and how you do things. Uh, what is what is your approach to kind of leadership? How do you think about it within your club and how do you influence the decisions beyond just uh, the, your club, but beyond within the UK or within the ecosystem of football that you are operating in? Yeah, so
2: yeah, we are, we are different. I mean, I'm the female CEO. I have a female sporting director. Um, our board membership, I think is about a third. is is female. I think the really crucial thing is you can't just put someone on the board, you then have to listen to them. And that's becoming the hard thing, because sometimes I'll meet someone and they say, oh, we've got a woman on our board, or hey, we've got this woman over here. And then I ask, which committees are they on? They're not on the finance committee. They're not on the nominations committee. They're on the diversity committee. It's like you get a woman in, and then you just ask her to diversify stuff but you don't actually listen to her in the serious places where decisions around finance and investment and sponsorship is made. So you have to bring people in and then you have to listen to them. And sometimes that has a real effect on a very, very small level, but it has a huge impact on the daily lives of your players or your staff. So as a very brief example, I was contacted very recently by a journalist wanting to ask me about the radical decision that Lewis FC took for our women's team who do not play in white shorts but um, men do. And I was like, oh, it wasn't radical. And they're like, yes, it is, you know, no other clubs do this. And I was like, okay, well, what happened was simply that one of the directors showed me the design for the new kit, and first of all, I was showed. Uh, Then I had an opinion, and I said, hey, do the women have to wear white shorts? Could they wear something different? Three, he listened to me, and four, he acted on it, and we changed it, and he said, no, sure. Why don't the women play in black shorts? The men can wear white shorts. It's so simple. It was, it was a nothing conversation, but there's things in there about the fact that there was a woman that was at a senior level, she was asked her opinion and her opinion was listened to. And that was so minor that when the journalist asked a couple of years later, I didn't realize that it was such a big deal. But that's how these, we have to think a little bit about equal decision-making, not just equal pay or equal resources, which is something we talk about a lot, obviously, but actually it's really about equal decision-making and who's making the decisions.
1: Brilliant. (laughs) Getting some applause there. Um, Great. Uh, I want to shift a bit the dial, talk a bit about fans. Why do I want to talk about it? I think it's quite important, as you all know, in terms of creating a sustainable ecosystem, you need to build your audience, you need to build your fans, because they're going to be the ones who are going to be consuming your products, uh, actually following you, uh, supporting you, and kind of building the clubs in general and building the game in general. I think it's such an important topic. And as you know, UEFA recently released a business case for women's football report, which we supported them on. And there were some interesting findings there on fans, particularly. So uh, I think one, uh, one stat was that about uh, 57% were new fans, so that have never watched women's football. Like they were only watching it in the last five years or later Um, and then the the female the fan in general was young female and uh, they were quite uh, aligned to progressive values as well so i wanted to ask you maggie first do you see that like does that reflect the fans that you have at lewis fc or in general that you see in women's football and what are kind of the the things that you've done to actually really attract fans and like and develop that uh, community within lewis fc
2: yeah I think that that is what we're seeing. Um, our women's games are very diverse. men, women, fifty percent, fifty percent. We have young, we have old. We've got different pockets of a bit like the the Wembley final, you know, young guys that are coming together, but also women, older women. So it's very much more diverse. What I've seen, by the way, on a tangent on our men's side is we've also diversified the audience by having our stance across the club around inclusion. We've seen more women coming to our men's games and more children coming to our men's games, I think because they realize it's an inclusive, welcoming space and not as toxic as some of the other teams. For us, um, match day experience has to be fun. You just have to get people wanting to come back, and we can't necessarily control the score, right? (laughs) That's the hardest bit. So you have to kind of create something around it and be innovative and different and test things and pilot things. And because we have freedom, because we don't, we're not set our KPIs; we set our own KPIs. It means that we can try something out. If it works, great. And if it doesn't, it 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 doesn't work. Um, So just quirky things that we've put into the match day experience. We have beach huts instead of corporate boxes. We've got a band that comes and plays. We don't pay them, they just wanna come and play. Um, We realized that maybe we should feminize the the ground a little bit because it was a very much uh, non-league men's football club. So just little touches, like we have a sign. As soon as you walk into the ground, there's a big sign saying, there is a uh, a breastfeeding area in this club. Please just ask a steward. Again, a small touch, but people constantly talk about it. At men's games as well as women's games, we've seen people using it. So I think there's, a, there's small touches that you can make. And for us, again, because our men and women play at the same ground, we own and control our facilities. And this is one of the major challenges for other teams that just rent a facility for their women's team, because they don't control the food outlets, so the food is bad. They don't control the drinks, so the drinks are standard. And they don't control even like the security guards that welcome you when you arrive, so they some, sometimes don't even know who the team's playing against, whereas with us, again, sharing our facilities and our resources, we are able to create a really positive environment that people feel when they walk in. The last thing that I think is important in this is we we talk a lot in this summit about knowing your audience and data. Of course, you do need to know your audience. But you also need to go out and find your potential audience. Because as you said, there are a lot of people that have felt uh, numb to football for a long time, or even people who like football don't go to football because of the reputation or the, the environment. And one of our target audience has been unwelcome women. So women who either never thought about going to a football game because that was just what their brothers did and their dads did together, or they literally felt that they didn't know the, the rules of, not the rules of the game, but the, the environment, like the, the turnstile is quite threatening. So we've opened up the gates so that people just walk through and scan through rather than going to a turnstile where it's dark and there's, you know, we're just playing around with like trying to make it welcoming for unwelcome people. And we really feel
1: that our audience as a result is really diversified. You're doing amazing stuff, so. It's also <laughs> it's really really hard. brilliant. <laughs> I know it must be because you're really doing a lot of hard work to actually get those people in the seats and get them to come back. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, we want to make sure that the fans are coming back. Um, I wanted to reflect on that a bit more, Ebru, with you. So I, I, as you mentioned, Maggie, we have about like one in three, I think, uh, women's fans from the report we saw were actually um, never previously followed men's game. So we have like an untapped market out there or potential or like new fans that we don't know that exists, but we want to get into. What do you think, Ebru, are like the best ways to get to those markets? What should the clubs or the leagues be doing or the federations to actually tap into those fans in the future to create and build that audience for the women's game?
3: Um, I agree that it presents a great opportunity to solve a problem that football is facing right now. I'm the generation that still, you know, when I walk into my stadium, Galatasaray Stadium, my heart starts beating in a different way, right? I love that full stadium environment, Mm -hmm. chanting and watching the live game. And on the away game weekends, I'm in front of TV, you know, watching the game, but my kids don't watch it anymore, right? And it's that generational change that is posing a significant challenge and threat for the industry. And this is the time when I think um, men's clubs, women's clubs, football in general needs to rethink how they present the game. I mean, we have a design in our mind, but fans are taking a shortcut, right? They're not necessarily watching the content you're feeding to them. Um, The ECA fan engagement study I thought was quite interesting as well. And only 25% of the fans are club loyalists and football fanatics and about 30% of that are women. The remaining 75, they have categorized into four, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, One is the followers of stars, and they don't necessarily have a club loyalty, so wherever Ronaldo goes, they would support that club. Um, The next one is FOMO group, Fear of Missing Out. Everybody's watching it, I should be watching it, so I'll go and watch it with them. And the last two groups are big eventers, So they would only watch the World Cup or Champions League final. And then the tag-along ones, meaning, okay, my family is going or my buddies are going, so I should go with them. And a significant portion of these last four groups is actually women. So it gives a great chance for not only women's clubs, but for all owners, all leagues, all federations to think, how do we bring this category of women, and especially the 13 to 24 year old boys, or men, into the regular follower category. What does it take? And there is not one size fits all. I think every club and every league needs to evaluate it in its own way. But content consumption patterns have changed significantly. And we can't just keep pushing the same 90-minute live content to everybody. So um, understanding your audience is very key. And trying to come up with pioneering, innovative ways of keeping that group engaged. And even if it means to make an investment in your own content, in your own digital platforms, that's a very good use of your funds. And I actually also recently joined the board of Australian Football League, which is in charge of both the men's and the women's and the youth leagues. And a significant portion of the private equity investment that the league has obtained is actually going into that content creation, setting your own digital distribution channels, and getting to the core fans as well as the less engaged fans and making sure that they are regular followers for the game. And this gives a great opportunity to brands who have not engaged with football yet, perhaps, um, but their values and the values of this more um, female and younger audience actually overlap quite a bit because this is the group that cares more about what my club stands for or what my star player stands for so there is a great opportunity to build those new brand um, recognitions around the values of what women's football also represents also brands are actually really wanting to
1: align to the values of the club, and the sponsors really want to see that there is uh, something that they're actually buying into, that is it's actually uh, making a change or impact. And now fans are actually valuing that. So the brands are seeing that they're valuing that and they want to be involved. So how is that for you and Lewis, Maggie? If they want to be involved um, because of that, the values that you have, because of the social causes. How do you see that manifesting? And what is the link then, or the sponsors, are they demanding more? Um, (laughs) more things from you? Are they wanting more uh, to give back to them? Or what is the dynamic today? I've actually seen a really nice shift um, just in the
2: last year towards trying to understand us better, which is absolutely what must happen after the Euros. If brands are starting to get interested, please go and talk to the people that are actually running women's football and figure out what they think. Don't come and say I've got an idea for you. You know, it's I'm seeing, I, I was, during the Euros, there were a couple of activations that were proposed and I was like, oh, that really does not, you can tell that that was cooked up in a, in a room without anyone that really understands women's football. But what I've noticed, so we brought on board our, our biggest ever sponsor yet, Zero, the accountancy software business platform. They are sponsoring the World Cup next year and we were their first ever club that they were partnering with. And what was really interesting, it's been such a delight to work with them because They wanted to help us hit the goals in our strategy. They asked me a million questions over the strategy that we had actively published online, and all they're doing is aligning with us, saying, OK, we'll we'll help you hit this, we'll help you hit this. And the other lovely thing they did was, they were like, how do you finance your safeguarding officer? How do you finance your financial controller? Now, yeah, it's hard, because it's not that sexy, right, to have a financial controller. Um, And they wanted to finance the back office side of things. So they've been fantastic to to work with because of them understanding what we're trying to achieve and then leaning in. Do they ask more from us? Not really, but one of the things they wanted to do, which aligns with this purpose and vision and value, was they, don't, they didn't want their brand everywhere, but they wanted to cause a ripple effect. They want to use us as a catalyst to help other football clubs. And so now we've gone into this program where we're gonna be helping you know, 20, 30 other clubs be more financially sustainable, um, try to understand women's football, invest in that. So we're acting as a bit of a catalyst with their support. And I think that's really that's really key and interesting because it's not actually all that brandy or, or markety. It's it's them wanting to genuinely do some good with their with their money. So those kinds of partnerships are are really important to us. They align so well. We've had to turn down partners in the past where the alignment just hasn't been there, um, because it's because it's our reputation as well. So anything that we put our badge onto, we have to be very comfortable and very confident with that because because of the levels
1: of trust that people have in us as a as a club. Great. I'm <laughs> um, I'm just reflecting on that actually now, and I'm thinking. So where what do you see the future then with the sponsorship? Where Where are we going? Are we getting more sponsors in? Is the game like uh, really attracting more sponsors today or not? I know we've talked about this a bit yesterday.
2: Yeah, I think it's coming. I think there are more brands getting involved. It's one of those classic things, right? Women's football has to be successful and then, and then they'll invest. And I just hope that some of the businesses out there will understand that we haven't even scratched the surface yet. We've managed all this rubbing two pennies together. Imagine if you invest. Imagine if you be part of the story, not just part of the outcome. There is so much that we can do. We don't even know where we're going yet. There are so many sponsorship activations that we haven't even thought about yet. So I want those sponsors to come in and be part of the story, not part of the outcome. And I think that's the exciting thing and that's where we can go. But you've got to listen to us. You've got to listen to us because we've got a beautiful culture and a beautiful environment. And there is a threat that that could be uh, not contaminated but kind of adjusted if we only focus on commercial growth right now, right here. Because women's football is too special for, for that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's so nice to, to see the passion, to be honest, and this is exactly what we need. every what are your thoughts on this in terms of sponsorship? What are you seeing happening in the world? Uh,
3: I think the, the key point was unbundling, right? Up till two, three years ago, women's football was slapped into packages because nobody wanted to buy it on its own. So if you wanted the men's rights, you had to buy the women's and quite a few of the brands were not necessarily attaching a value to it or investing further to activate it. And I think this cycle, um, especially with UEFA tournaments and, and club international championships, UEFA started unbundling, and then women's football had a standalone value where the brands really had to think hard what is the best way to to go beyond this, just putting my logo everywhere. How do I activate it? And um, during the Euros this summer, we also saw, for example, that our uh, we had some new partners as women in football. Heineken came in and together we brainstormed and we said, all right, why don't we do a mentoring program for people who worked or volunteered during the Euros as well as who continue to work in football because that's a very important Um, uh, you know, support to the women working in the game who need to navigate the, you know, rather political maybe um, environments in their organizations. And the other one was with Pepsi, where we're working with coaches and uh, people who want to get the next level of their coaching licenses. And um, our partnership with Barclays was recently renewed. And for the first time, We're not a CSR category for them, but we actually have accountable targets that we need to hit together on their behalf as well. So it's that um, point where women's football is seen as a standalone valued product that started changing the landscape. And I, I think that there will be a big growth opportunity, again, especially because of you know, men's sponsorship side is quite crowded. It's more difficult to maybe, you know, get onto a blank page where you can really uh, talk about uh, your priorities or or your values, but um, you're getting much more exposure to a new audience uh, through women's football. And I think hopefully with the next cycles of, uh, either league rights or, or club rights or major tournament rights, we're going to see more new names coming into women's football. Um, so just one thing um, I wanted to discuss,
1: which we haven't touched upon yet, was is a bit of the on-the-pitch success, because that's also as important, right? We are still seeing gaps, uh, even within one league or competition, you have gaps between the clubs, it, even also between countries today. So you have a lot more developed countries in Europe, even within Europe, you have gaps. Now you have like Asia also, uh, some, some countries they're doing well, but also a lot of others still way behind. So that gap on the pitch is quite high. And if we want to create a self-sustaining ecosystem in the future, we have to elevate everyone. So how do we really do that? How do we help bridge that gap on the pitch as well to support the game? It's, it's a real tricky one. I would love women's football to
2: develop with a little bit more of an equity mindset in the way that revenue, like broadcast and TV and uh, other forms of revenue are split between teams. So for example, at the moment, um, and I know this is 100% intuitive, The way that the TV split happens is the the Women's Super League gets 75% and then splits it across the clubs and the championship gets 25% and we split it across the clubs. That's normal, right? But imagine if we flipped it. Imagine if, because we control that funding, you know, then the clubs can go out. The the WSL teams are on Sky, they're on the BBC, they're going to get access to more forms of funding through sponsorship. Imagine if you flipped it and actually came... 75% 75% to the championship and 25% to the Super League. You're basically saying, hey, we believe in the, in the pyramid. We believe in the pipeline of talent. And remember, the WSL have all their youngsters on loan to clubs like ours. We're cooking them for them. So it would be really fascinating, I think, if we had an equity mindset where an, a higher split of the money we can control centrally goes to clubs lower down. And, and you know, and also the tier below us as well. I'm not being totally selfish, I promise. We sit in the second tier, obviously. But I think that having that equity mindset, that longer-term planning, of course it's going to be very difficult for the Super League clubs to vote for that kind of thing. But imagine if we actually could. So I think there's some things there. Otherwise, what happens is you will carry on getting the split. I would like to see more emphasis on clubs' revenue generation because we make a lot more money than most other clubs, but we don't have that big pocket to tap into. And when the license is changed year on year and it's tightened and tightened, some of those changes that are being asked of us are just too difficult for an independent club or a a small club like ours to keep up. And for me, that's a shame because I think we bring value to the women's game, right? (laughs) And we might just be tweaked out of things because I don't suddenly have 100,000 pounds to improve our floodlight, lux light rating. Uh, because I want to put that 100000 into medical support or something else. So I think the people, when we're making these decisions, I'd love to have an equity mindset, and I'd also love to figure out a way that we make sure that women's football doesn't, can I say this, doesn't become the Premier League. Like, just four years ago, 50% of the clubs in the Super League were Premier League clubs. This season, it's 11 out of 12. Women's football could just end up looking like the Premier League, but I'd like to survive and I think that we bring value. So I think there's some tweaks that we could make
1: to the model. Agreed. And what about every, what about the other countries, you know? Because
3: the gaps are still quite wide yeah. in general. I know we are running out of time probably, but I'll quickly say competitive balance obviously starts with access to the game. And school sports play a very important role in that. So a girl is very inspired, wants to play. I grew up in a country in Turkey where you know all sports were available but football and um still football is very difficult for little girls to access but if it's in her school right in pe classes she can start playing and then the next step is obviously having those um 6 to 12 year olds being able to train in the same ways boys do those of you who are coming from playing or coaching backgrounds know the importance of um, you know, thousands of hours of play before you can come become a competitive um, elite player. So setting up the academies for girls football, many, many clubs, including the Premier League clubs, unfortunately yet do not have that academy structure, and let alone globally with less uh, resourced countries, That's that's also a very difficult situation. But why would clubs invest in their academies if they knew that there were proper compensations, you know, uh, solidarity payments? And um, if their players could be sold for a fee in the future, obviously that's a very important revenue source. Think of the men's game. 5 billion euros were once again spent this summer on men's transfer window. Yes, number of players' transfers in the women's game at elite level is increasing significantly. This year it was close to 700 transfers, but only 35 of them were for exchange of money. And the most expensive player transfer was, I think, if I'm not wrong, around 150,000 Um, euros compared with 150 million euros in the men's game. So if that transfer market is designed in the same way compensation is properly given to the training club as well, um, and with the growth of that market, then more people will make the investment in their academies. And then the last thing I will say is about professionalization of the leagues. Unfortunately, majority of the leagues globally, women's leagues are not at a professional stage yet. And what that means is the the women playing do not have um, standard contracts. They don't have the maternity provisions. Uh, They don't have the kind of um, salaries that would sustain them to be only players, right? Many of them have second, third jobs in order to be able to play. They don't have pensions, right? This is even in the UK, unfortunately. So unless we're able to provide that future security to the girls, the parents are gonna pull them out of the game and not everybody's gonna make it to the elite level. What can the girl who's still passionate about football do? That's where we come in as women in football. We want to showcase all the possibilities of jobs within the football industry, whether it's a groundswoman or, you know, a CEO or a chairperson, everything is up for grabs. And we are trying to keep that pathway lively from referees to coaches to grassroots players and every level of the game needs to be uh, fairly resourced in order to achieve that sustainable and competitive balance. Brilliant. I
1: want to say thank you so much to both of you. Thank you to everyone for being here today. We've run out of time, so we'll have to stop now. I wish we we don't have to because it's a brilliant discussion. But thank you again and uh, have a good rest of your day.
0: And there you have them. Ebru, Maggie and Elise with a masterclass on the WFS Europe stage on how to make women's football more sustainable. What were the key takeaways for me from this amazing panel? First, the importance of the value of the brand and the match experience. This is what lets you have a premium pricing strategy, attract bigger sponsors, and close long-term deals. Second, content has a key role in attracting more fans to the game, especially those from the younger generations of fans. Third, a fair distribution of resources and accessibility from the youth programs and up are fundamental to grow the game further. This is actually something we discussed from Lindy and Wenya from Sisu Sports Management. So be sure to check that episode up as well. Is there anything else that stood out for you? If so, reach out across social media and let us know. And remember, you can subscribe and rate the podcast on the platform of your choice. And of course, Share it with those friends and colleagues in the industry. Nothing else from my side. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the World Football Summit podcast. Have a great rest of your day and we hope to see you next time.